Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Mayday, the Handmaid's Tale podcast. This podcast is not affiliated with Hulu or Margaret Atwood in any way. The views and opinions expressed within are our own until such time as Hulu becomes our financial benefactors or Margaret Atwood hires us to be a personal band of assistants. We're open to either, if you're listening. With that being said, let me introduce myself. My name is Justin. I will be your co-host for the podcast as we watch The Handmaid's Tale TV show. We'll be discussing the show, the book, the issues surrounding it, and we will be shining a positive light on some people doing some good work in the world. I could not have done this alone, so I've got three co-hosts along for the ride with us. Let me introduce you to them. First, we have Tiana, who not only talks real good, but she also handles all our web and graphic design. She's got bonus skills. Next, we have Rhea, uber smart lady extraordinaire, badass educator of the youth, and my friend, who will say brilliant things like... How much the society was able to kind of conscript women through fear and through pain and through guilt and regret and all of these other feelings. And last but not least, a man that I am so close to that we're almost related, but mostly because we're married to cousins. Jason. Jason brings a special perspective as he has never read the book and has no idea about the story. Plus, he has the recording gear. Again, bonus skills. As I said, my name is Justin. I just wanted to start this podcast to talk about the show and the book and kind of some of the issues surrounding it, and hopefully we'll have a good time here. And last but not least, to Jamie. Yes, you, Jamie. This entire project is dedicated to you. Because as you know, this is all your fault. Mayday, the Handmaid's Tale podcast proudly presents Hardcore Lady Quotes. Quotes of inspiration, empowerment, and rebellion Chosen, recorded, and read by my kid. Who am I? It seems like an easy question. And then I realize, maybe what I said to those cops wasn't a joke. Maybe the name belongs to whoever has the courage to fight. And so I tell them. I tell them who I am. You can call me Miss Marvel, and if you cooperate, I won't throw you again. G. Willow Wilson, Miss Marvel, Volume 1, No Normal. All right, here we are, the inaugural May Day, The Handmaid's Tale podcast. We have gathered, and we have just watched the first episode, thanks to Hulu and Screener. Thanks, Hulu. So what do you want to do? You want to go through everybody and how they uh, came to the book and the story and the whatnot? Go. Yeah, you start. Go. Okay, so I first heard of the book several years ago. My wife attempted to read it and did not like it. Now, fast forward. Just let that sink in. Yes, let that sink in. Because she is very much the woman that should like this story. And she just couldn't do it. Um, Fast forward a number of years, and a friend of mine suggested that I read it. And I'd started listening to audiobooks. So I listened to the audiobook version. And in the middle of it, when they uh, do the big reveal on how this came to be, I had to literally text her in the middle of while I was in my car and be like, this story needs to get out of my head because this is all not needs to not be happening right now. Uh, so that is how I have come to this book. And that is what kind of inspired this project more or less. Um, it really stuck with me. 
And so I decided once I had heard that they were doing the TV show to put something together. And so here we are. Rhea, you probably came to this a long time before I did. I think I read it in college, but I don't think it was for a class. I think a friend just passed it on, but I don't remember the first time I read it. Um, I remember it just being part of like my feminist consciousness. And then when I was teaching um, social theory classes, I used it as a novel in our social theory class. And so we'd read um, different sociological theorists, and then they would apply the theories to this society that is made up in the book. Um, and then part of their argument in this paper would be, is Atwood presenting a theory of what society is or could be or should be? Um, so I taught it in this sociology context. Um, and now I'm back in an English classroom where I have high schoolers reading it by choice. And it's been really fun to talk to them about how creeped out they are by the book. Right. Um, and one just finished it so that she could watch the Hulu nice. show. I was very proud. Nice. Have there been positive reactions from the one who have, I mean, yes, everyone has as positive reaction as you can have to the story now. For sure. One is a hundred pages in and he's saying she has an agenda. And I said, absolutely. Your goal is to figure out what that is. So <laughs> there's been some recognition of that. Um, but everyone else has said that they're seeing lots of parallels between that and today's society. And they're surprised. They were surprised at how, in their words, old the book was because they thought it was recent given how current right. the issues are. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I had wondered, like, I was looking online today and I there was a uh, someone on Twitter who had posted all these uh, tweets of people who were calling the TV show, uh, having not clearly not having known anything about it prior to seeing the trailer or whatever they saw, just about how it was all this left-wing propaganda <laughs> and all this stuff. And people were like, this is not new. This is not what this is about. So, Tiana... Tell us how you came to know the story. Um, I can't remember when I was first exposed to the book, but I was raised by a feminist hippie mother. Uh, so chances are good that she just like put it in my hands one day. Um, I've read it a bunch of times. It's one of my favorite books. I hadn't read it in a few years when I heard the show was coming out and wanted to reread it and promptly realized I had loaned my copy of it out and never gotten it back. So I had to order another one and I'm currently rereading it. As the show is happening, um, I don't have a lot of time to read, so I will be rereading throughout the series airing. Excellent. So the new audiobook version that is out, because I did not listen to the newer version. There is a new version that Claire Danes recorded, oh, and yes. she yes. did it. And when I was doing some research for the show, I found out that Margaret Atwood actually wrote some new stuff for the end. Um, what? Yes, this added, added material towards the end. Of the audiobook version that is on Audible. And no, I have to listen to it, yes. too. She is a person in the crowd that asks the question of one of the guys that's on the panel. And is asking all this stuff that kind of relates back to how things are today. Because I think she wanted to add a little something extra given the current political climate. Yeah. So I found that really interesting. So if you are uh, wanting to get through the book quicker, that might be an option for you. If you're an audiobook person, I don't know I don't, if you are. I, I don't have more time to listen than I currently uh, have to read. So that's not really You're help. just a busy lady. All right, that's fine. So, Jason, do you know anything about this story? Nope. Outside of watching the trailer and reading, like, the basic synopsis on IMDb. (laughs) IMDb, no less. There you go. So, I'm glad that Jason is here, and I was kind of excited to have this perspective of Jason being kind of the person who hasn't read the book and is kind of coming at it with virgin eyes, more or less. Um and so, what were your thoughts on your initial viewing? The first viewing? You're like, I'm just super uncomfortable still 
Like, it's one of those things where you're just, like, watching it. Like, I mean, there's movies, like, you watch downer movies. Like, for example, like, Schindler's List. Like, there is no redeeming, like... Right. like there's, like, there's parts where it's hopeful, but, like, you know, it's still a downer overall. Sure. And that's, like, that's the first time since probably that movie. I like, that whole episode, I'm just, like... You just have pity your stomach, like, you don't right. feel good about watching yeah. it. And, like... I like just met Rhea within the last hour and a half. Yes. And I know Tiana from like a couple of times. Well, yeah, well, when we get to the episode, the ceremony part, I don't know how more uncomfortable I could have been. Really <laughs> like, we could have all been watching you watch it. Like, I you know. Then I, I, I could tell like, everybody was looking at me when I was doing stuff. So I'm like even more uncomfortable. I would because there were certain parts in that episode where I was like, I knew it was coming. And so I just watched Jason to be like, what is this going to be like for Jason? Because no, the ceremony, yeah, the ceremony is awful, and they uh, do they do a pretty good so job. So many levels of, of awful. It, and just the fact that no one in the ceremony can enjoy it at all, like even the guy, you know, it's just yeah, it's not like it's you're even feeling bad for you know main character. Like you're literally the, everybody in that room. You're like, this is uncomfortable for not even people in the room, probably in the house, because everybody knows what's going right. on right now. So you're even uh-huh. more uncomfortable, like. It's not short either, right? They don't mercifully cut it after 10 seconds. Yeah, it was a solid like three to five minutes. Like three to five. And that's probably longer. That's probably longer than I think. I don't think that's probably gone on a long time. I don't think it was really that long. I think it's just the discomfort level. Yeah, like I I said, I say it's three minutes. It might have been like a minute and a half, but it felt so much longer. And you just don't want to. You're just like, oh, man. It's supposed to feel awful. It's going to be, you're involved. right. It is going to be like Schindler's List esque, where it's going to be like, that was great. Uh, let's not I watch that. I never want to see that, that again. again. Exactly. <laughs> I think, like, what struck me watching it is seeing the women conspiring against other women and how much the society was able to kind of conscript women through fear and through pain and through guilt and regret and all of these other feelings. Um, that it was in their best interest to keep other women under them. And to watch it felt just really visceral, right? Like th- we're betraying each other and yet we don't have a choice. And so it just felt like this is the worst of the worst that we would oppress each other. Right. And you're supposed to have this solidarity and at the same time know that, it just, you know, the people that you're in solidarity with are not, do not have your best interest in. Right. And could right? possibly be watching you and turning you into the, I don't even know what are those people called, the I. With the big black van, yeah, the runs eyes, down the, the street. Eyes are the, the spies for Gilead. The ants too, right? Like that. That ends up being the ants' role. That we're here with you. We're like you. We are women like you. We feel like you. And yet, the second you get out of line, you are no longer under our protection. Yeah, it's a very interesting role for the ants because at the beginning, when they're at the Red Center, and they treat them like they're terrible. And then there's the I forget what is the is it the what's the ceremony called where they go the salvaging the salvaging yeah. so when they're at the salvaging and then all of a sudden they're like trying to make them feel like oh we're one of you and this man has raped and it's terrible and we feel so bad and now you can come gather in a circle and pound the crap out of him for five minutes and which what's is key to that is that they don't have any other knowledge right we don't know that that guy actually right, did exactly. that and in fact yeah. I think he probably did not you know he's but that's the method of social control is we, we keep the knowledge from you and only give you what we want you to have and Controlling, to, to watch it control yeah. the narrative partly I'm sure because I don't remember so much of the book um, that well I really found myself super distracted in that scene by like going through the possibilities of what he actually could have done that they would just turn into he raped a handmaid and she miscarried. 
Because that's the ultimate crime in this society, yes, right? Yes, Even if destroying what he did was a baby to steal or to lie. Yeah, or... or just maybe, you know, he had, like, a real relationship right. with a woman, and that's how they construed it. I mean, there's just so many things. So that you can't even trust the show. Can't trust anything. <laughs> can't trust anything. No, I thought I was, like, watching that scene, which second most uncomfortable scene to watch. That. <laughs> but um, the funny, not funny thing, but the interesting thing is I was watching his face most of the time. And there wasn't, it was just like stone faced. Like most of the time I didn't like, you kind of like, you didn't see like a bit of fear is one of the things you didn't know if it was, he just knew he was kind of like, no matter what, no matter what I do here, I'm going to die. Yeah. I'm like pretty much like this. And like, you never saw him like any kind of fear or anything. He just pretty much knew no it's like fate. So part of me is like, like I thought that too, like. Did all this happen, or is it just like yeah. this is a guy that just probably is against you know the government or what is now the government? Maybe, or maybe, maybe he's just the sacrificial lamb. Maybe it's just one of those things just to keep yeah. the guy and said, "Your turn." Maybe they found out he just can't have children and like he's no longer useful. Yeah, yeah. it could be. It could have been a lot of things, or just somebody that they just could just plucked from anywhere, and it's just to keep kind of like this, like I guess almost brainwashing mm-hmm. kind of society together, just right. like. All right, you do this, and then you saw like that's their way of getting, I guess, aggression out because they're very obviously docile, right? Taught to be docile in the house and outside of the house, but then this is their way of like their only outlet. Outlet, and then okay, they got that out, so okay, we can go back to tell them to do, you know, whatever we want. So it was very, it was a very interesting kind of scene too. And then you're also thinking, well, maybe just from everything else that you've been presented so far, since that was you know ninety percent of the way through the episode. Like, maybe this guy's getting screwed. He knows he's getting screwed. So, you don't know where this is going. And could it also be in a, if you want to, how far you want to take it, maybe he volunteered for that. Maybe he's just the guy that sacrifices himself to be, you know, the sacrificial lamb, as I said, to be, let them get their aggression out and keep continuing this charade on so that they can keep this society going. Well, it's part of what's neat is that the audience is in Fred's position in some way because we also don't know what's going on behind the scenes, right? right? So we don't know. Maybe he was was probably tortured before then when we saw Janine tortured off screen. Like they they only get information. Maybe and he's control little as bits. crazy as Janine, right? Like they just got just into quieter. The point where he <laughs> We're going to talk about Janine later. Yeah, Janine should get her whole <laughs> She's show. She's an agenda item for sure. Absolutely. So let's go back, I think, and talk about kind of the overview of what we did see from the beginning of the episode. So. We kind of open up and we've got the scene with her and her husband and their daughter driving the F away, trying to get away from we don't know what yet. And of course, the car breaks down like you do in a show. And she takes off with the kid and he has to stay there. So I'm asking you two as women. Um, how does that, that, cause the first thing Tiana said when she started watching this was it's completely different when you have a child, yeah. when you have children and we that all little girl is my here, son's so. age and that oh, was wow. really difficult. Um, this is so watching it with you three is the second time I've seen it. I watched it last night mm-hmm. and both times, um, that was really difficult to watch because, you know, it's way too easy to put myself in her shoes. Way too easy. Yep. Um, well, yeah, it taps it into this terrifying. fear that, like, 
the society says that we're supposed to have, right? The Gilead officials are want us to be afraid of the things that were happening in our old society. They want us to be afraid that we'll be chased down by violent men. And so the fact that it opens with that, but that the violent men are actually representatives of this new world, right? right the fear doesn't go away just because you have decided to structure things differently. It is a society and that exists kind of with this great hypocrisy of talking about all the terrible things that were, but then doing all the terrible things that they talk about. Right. So, you know, like, like, for instance, that's when they take the women to the red center and they basically try and indoctrinate them. And if they don't, they cut your eye out like Janine. And then they take you in there and try and, you know, make you feel better because you get to beat the crap out of this guy. And there's just this dichotomy of you're saying all these things, but doing all like these other layers. things. They're just layers, layers and layers of hypocrisy. So from there, it kind of jumps around. Right. So it's do they're doing it very much via flashback. Which is, I I wondered with the book how they were going to do it, since so much of it is all in her head. Um, I thought the voiceover was working well. I was curious if that's still supposed to be the recorded voiceover that was left, or... I was really enjoying the voiceover as just function of the show, because... When you're reading the book, it's, it's all, it's her head, you're just, you're reading her thoughts... And that's really hard to do, I think, successfully on television. I, I feel like there's like a 50-50 success rate on right. voiceovers, generally speaking. And sometimes when they do do voiceovers, it's because your writers are terrible. And yeah. You and this felt very have a voiceover seamless. to explain what's going on. And this is that's not the case here. This felt super seamless. Like, yes. I reminded myself a couple of times that, like, the other characters were not hearing the same things that we are hearing, especially when there's those those rare but much needed funny moments. Yes, which she, I, I was pleasantly is, uh, surprised that... There were more of those than I was expecting because I really was expecting for it to be a downer. And I think injecting that bit of humor and kind of lightness to it. And I thought it also gave it even more so than in the book because in the book it's fairly humorless. Yeah. And this gives us a little more humanity. Like I think almost a little bit more realism as to how things would be if you were put in that situation. Um, So that was kind of nice to see and kind of refreshing. And I hadn't really thought about that having read the book, but going to this version of it. Kind of all the women kind of having to be like, oh, I do that. And it's this tiny act of rebellion too. Even getting her thoughts is an act of rebellion because she's not allowed to express them. So the fact that we get to hear them and then that it goes this step further and, you know, she's saying things like this sucks, you know. And there's such nice camera work. You get a lot of interesting close-ups of people's faces where, you know, the other characters can't see them or are just averting their eyes as is apparently the custom in this society. Right. So like you see the like half an eye roll and it's like so endowed with meaning it's amped up because, yeah you know. because there is just so little outward information so it's it's super interesting so we are introduced to the commander and his wife who they did not named yet in the show but have they not they didn't give their first name they gave the last names which was but you Waterford. know you can deduce the commander's name if you understand how the women are how the handmaids are ah, yes so let's go through that because i don't know if jason is aware of that yeah that's so the, you the Offred, yeah. And so you would be. Yeah, I got that. Of Christie, yeah, it's weird. yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so we, uh, the couple of characters we were introduced to once you get there, the commander and his wife, who will end up being Serena Joy, eventually. So he's uh, apparently very high up because every time he is mentioned as being her commander, everybody says, "Oh, you're fancy or lucky mm-hmm. dog or whatever." Good, good stuff. And so he must be a fa- fairly high up guy. 
Um, so he's played by Ralph Fiennes. Is that how we're pronouncing his name? I think it's Joseph. Joseph Fiennes. Joseph Fiennes. It's the little brother <laughs> of You pronounce Ralph it Fiennes. Joseph. It's spelled yeah. differently than it. The R is silent. Joseph. Joseph Fiennes. Now, the last thing I can remember Joseph Fiennes doing that I remembered was Shakespeare in Love. He so. was in, because I watch a show, he was in American Horror Story. Oh. He was a priest in season two. I see. I didn't know. I'm, I'm afraid. Yeah, of he was that, like the main so. guy. Yeah. So, but that's like, but obviously. Any American Horror that. Story people in here? A little bit. A little bit? Yeah. Did you watch that season that he was in? Uh, only half of it. That's season two. Yeah, yeah you're fine. You didn't see the roast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jason. No problem. <clears throat> catch right, catch so... me next week on the American Horror Story podcast. <laughs> 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 you should. You should have one. All right. So uh, one of the things that I thought was pretty cool, um, the way they did Loaves and Fishes, I did not necessarily expect it to be like a supermarket flush I, you know right? i thought it would have three oranges in yeah it. yeah right. I, that's i don't think that's how it's described in the book and the Correct. book it's in the described b- more as like a small marketplace yeah, you know, right like and, very rustic well and i think in the in the book it's portrayed as it's hard to get things which yeah. is why the oranges are a big deal when they keep telling her make sure you get the commander oranges if they're there today because he's a big fan of the oranges and they don't always have them so in the book it's portrayed as more like there's a not only the birth plague or the fertility plague that's happened across there's also all the fighting with the rebels and so things are hard to come by so those stores are portrayed more as being a little tapped out this looked a little more plentiful than yeah. i was expecting yeah. but they did do a really good job of kind of presenting everything without words because yeah. they're not allowed to read so they can only yeah uh, i was wondering if that was something ca- that jason pick noticed up on that, jason? the women are yeah. not allowed to read or the women write are not allowed to yeah, read she like very lightly mentioned like she said something like that like and so did you oh, notice when they went it. into the yeah. store? Yeah. store, yeah, when yeah. she was all like, the, oh, I didn't read it. Well, all the, yeah. all the cans and all the, everything has pictures on it because they can't I didn't actually catch that. read it. Yeah. Yeah. I heard I heard the one girl say, like, oh, I didn't read it. Right. Oh, yeah, because you're... They're I know not allowed about, to. You're not yeah. allowed to read yeah, it. I'm not allowed to read it. Yeah. yeah, and so pictures are everything. That's why when they're doing the, uh, like, vouchers for the food, it's a picture of whatever they're getting. Gotcha. And all the stores have signs, but it's a picture of whatever you're going to get because... Reading's bad for women. There was women. interesting light stuff going on. It was really kind of bright and sterile in there. And you see the picture of the the, the frame of her sitting in her window and the light is framing her. But otherwise, the house is very dark. House is and very so you dark. get this really somber, eerie feeling. And there was the a lot of strategic, you know, light through the window yeah. shots. There's a lot are, of natural lighting until you get to the supermarket. Yeah. Did anybody else notice the creepily peppy uh, music in the supermarket that was suddenly very on when they were looking at the oranges? And all of a sudden, it was like oh, Mad Men yeah. in there and it made it. <laughs> seem completely insane because you went from the you went from like that moment of oh my god they're not allowed to read right to oranges and they're all you know sexual slaves it's just it it made it completely insane in the show breeding stock you don't need eyes for that thank you oh yes that's right another another janine reference (laughs) random note with the breeding stock that is what i i feel like the ear tags that they have yes. in the show are like a reference to that because don't they look a lot like heddle tags? Yeah, they do. Yeah. I, you got to think that that's up? the that's an addition that I thought was interesting, and yeah. I would think that kind of a good addition given the fact that in the show they're trying to make it a little more modern times. It's like if they have to be have a way to track everyone, I would guess, and so by putting that on your ear, that's probably not something you can uh, easily. Yeah, it looked like it was pierced out. through her cartilage yeah, when you exactly. see it in the bath. Which is not an easy place to remove anything from. Uh, it certainly wouldn't feel good. And you would probably notice if that part of your ear was missing. So, 
good on them. I thought that was a nice addition. Uh, we do get introduced to Nick, who is the chauffeur in the story. Um, younger than I thought he was going to be. Yeah, he's a, but everyone, guy everyone is younger. Everyone is younger. Except um, for Alfred. She's about the same, I think. Okay. And that I'm really curious about, because if they want prime kind of breeding stock, if we're going with their language, and she already has an eight-year-old, and she ostensibly probably got pregnant after college, it's interesting that she's still considered to be well, she, part I, of that. I well, would think that at this years. point, given the plague, that they're going to take whoever they can get, agree, as long as you yeah, are. That's kind of what Except I Except that they have other, like, yeah. some women are Marthas, right? So they get assigned to I the kitchen. I assumed the Marthas were not able to have children. I assumed basically everybody that is not a so handmaid. So I they know if you have had one child, you probably could have and another one. So it's maybe everyone who's already do had they one. test for it? Yeah, they would have know. to, you would think. I mean, they... I, I kind of have always assumed that they checked, even with the book. Like, I just yeah. kind of made that assumption, but that could be totally Because really, wrong. I mean, 16-year-old girls are the way to go if we're talking fertility. <laughs> well, it is now, but now there's not a, you know, That's a plague of plague infertility. Could be, this plague like could be explaining if it, a lot if of it, this age discrepancy. They did show in the creepy slides that Aunt Linda was showing in the Red Center, um, you know, a kind of time breakdown, a really bad chart, <laughs> that, that time breakdown visual. of fe- stacked fetuses. And it was showing a decrease over time. So that makes me wonder, is it that women women who are already adults were just less and less able to have children or that women aging into um, prime baby making years were just Exposed not to able to have children? Yeah. I think anymore. in the book, it's kind of explained as a it, it's not specific. I think it's because of it's more an abortion it, tinted kind of like yeah, that women was, now have reproductive freedom. Right. And therefore, yeah. we don't have. You know, I know in the, in the book, it they come at it as there were a number of contributing factors that there was no one thing that caused the plague. Well, I think that's what we're supposed to get it's, out of her creepy. Right. Show. And so I don't know if they really know or if they even really took the time to explain or need to because here we are. It doesn't matter. Because it I have a matter, here we that are. I, will, I will tase you with if you don't do what I say. Which oh, is yeah. kind of the point of the line of was there a time before this? Because it doesn't matter, clearly. Because this is where we're at and this is the reality of the situation. Uh, one of the, the scene on the wall I thought was awesome when they walk up to the wall at first. Because when they turn the corner and they're walking back from Loaves and Fishes, they hit the wall. And if you don't know what you're looking at, it kind of looks like... There's people sitting on the wall. Because you just see the feet. Because you just oh, see the feet. Yeah. And so when they turned, I, like, I know what it is, but I looked at it and I was like, oh, it's like people sitting on the wall. And I was like, oh, that's the wall wall. And there, <laughs> those people are not sitting Did you get that wall. impression, Jason, since you had not read the book and you didn't? Uh, yeah, I like, kind of like saw them. It, I knew something was up just from seeing like the <laughs> angle. Like, and I just saw like, the way they were kind of were. Like, you can tell they were just dangling, but they weren't moving if people were sitting there. Right. So I was like, that's weird. Then, of course, they showed like a couple seconds later that people are hanging there. So that's like obviously kind of like for since it's a very like religious type thing. I thought that was kind of like when crucifixions happen. So there's the three kind of set up things uh-huh, like, OK, if true. you come here, like, you know, that's kind of to a degree. That's kind of like what crucifixions were. It's just like and that's how these were. Just this guy was a priest and which obviously for not. Now, what were the religion, th- what were the three guys on the wall? Priest. Priest, uh, gay man, priest, a gay man, and a doctor. Correct. A doctor. Okay, I couldn't think of the third one. The doctor thing. Yeah, I guess that's more explained later because obviously I had no idea why that did. And they insinuate because it, there's a baby that yeah, there's a fetus on his. Yeah. Oh, okay. that so, would be my only guess. Yeah, because I was just like, okay, he's a doctor. Don't in, you kind of need those to? 
in the book, there are references to them rounding up doctors based on old hospital records. So they go find all the doctors that ever performed abortions. Ah, uh, gotcha. Okay. That they makes seek sense them out. So like they might have been living peacefully in Gilead until somebody gets to the record that identifies gotcha. them. Okay. That makes sense. Thanks. So the other two is like from what their you know, rules are, that makes a hundred percent sense why those two are there. But like the doctor, I'm like, Right. Yeah, otherwise and, you would really yeah, aid them. Like, Don't you want to kind of need a couple of those around just to make sure things are okay? Right. They need the right kind yeah. that are going to do the things. But it's also this do. American spectacle too, right? The you know we think about the Puritans and the stocks and and this this public display of well, public if you displays. don't conform, right? I feel like that's pretty not an universal, thing, though. though. Yeah. Well, but it has a root as Jason was saying, as well. as we the brought that over from England. But it's public. part of it's part of our history oh, as sure. much as it is anybody else's. And so to say, even if we've gotten to this point in history where we think we're beyond all that, that's still part of you know who we were as a country. And Absolutely. The last thing I remember right before they cut away from that is there was a lady. Feeding the ducks, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, that's <laughs> an interesting, such a normal, thing. <laughs> such an interesting thing." Because like, you know, a Martha, just putting like on a studying the scene hat. They don't include that for no reason. I just thought, you know, it's interesting that like there's these animals out here that are more free than uh, the people. Yeah. That are living well, in and like society. the banality of evil concept, right? That this is just your day to day life, like right. like the Nazis who committed these atrocious crimes. Your that new would normal. go home, you know. This is just what we do at work. We just feed the ducks and watch over the, the dead people hanging on the wall, and it may not seem ordinary now. And I, the red center part of it was really well done, and pretty much keeps with the story in the book. But you do see kind of the indoctrination when they're sitting around after Janine is a. Uh, has her eye removed because she doesn't oh. need it. Um, and Offred's sitting there and they're going through Janine's story of being raped by all these guys at this party, I guess. Oh, uh, yeah. All the guys that she was talking about, I knew you know, two or three at a time and I knew them all. And then they, for the people that don't know this story, it's an interesting turn because you think you know where that's going. If you're a watcher who doesn't know the story, you think, oh, they're going to, they're having this and they're trying to help her work through it. But then they say, whose fault is it? And then all of a sudden, everybody starts yeah. pointing at her, and it's her yeah, fault, her fault. And Offred is sitting there looking like, what, what is going doing? on? <laughs> but then you see her just totally comply because you've seen what happens if you don't comply, which is you get your eye gouged out because you're Janine. So I thought that was a really awesome scene. So you could see kind of this is people trying to survive at this point when you're brought into that situation where you have no idea yeah, it's- what is expected of you. I found myself thinking, like, is that how indoctrination really happens? It, like, that's it's such a creepy scene to see people that you know think that that is absolutely the wrong thing because you you know enough about uh, Moira as well to right. know that she does not agree with that. Right. But she looks like she absolutely is a true believer in that moment that she is pointing at her, saying it's her fault, and that is just well, chilling it, and. I mean, to some extent, you're going to know that that... So there's a variety of reasons you would do that, right? You got the women who have just accepted that that's how it's going to be and just become what they want to... What Gilead wants them to become. You have the ones who are going to resist, and the way they're going to resist is to just survive through it until they can do something. They don't know what yet, because as she says in the story, there's just no... She does. I mean, they made it pretty clear that She's going to survive and she's going to keep her hope up for her daughter. And so the people that, I guess, have something to live for that have the mental wherewithal to push through that, it's just crazy. And so, yeah, Jason, any thoughts on that? No, I have everybody's What else did you think? 
You got any other thoughts? Um, no, like the the uh, wrap it up like towards like the end. It was kind of nice to after literally for like fifty six minutes of like getting your stomach punched and just like <laughs> feeling awful that there was that kind of like they give you that little ray of like hope that you know and she didn't uh what's her name help me out with the actress elizabeth moss thank you i was gonna say miller but i knew that was wrong so um it came off that like she was very still had that thing of hope in her mind and obviously it's the main thing is going for her daughter obviously is the main focus but just uh still after everything that happened just in the episode and obviously that's kind of like flashing back a little bit and then kind of focusing on current time and then kind of back and forth. But just to think about that current time, what happened, she literally went to the store, saw people hanging, which is like a norm apparently, you know, obviously you had the ceremony and then also had the salvage salvaging, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. And then yet all that, which that, I guess the way it's portrayed in the episode, that's like 36 hours. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Maybe a day. It's maybe it, maybe in a day and a half. Maybe yeah, at the I most. think the salvaging is a different day than the ceremony. Yeah, so that's maybe like two days, thirty-six hours, yeah. 40, 48 hours, and you're so that's a lot to digest in forty-eight hours. And so she had that little ray of hope where you, sh- you can kind of see that's where it's going to be the main driver, mm-hmm. her main focus at least, finding her daughter, finding her daughter. So that's going to be what you know her. So now you know her drive was going to help her get through this awfulness that is surrounding her right now so i thought having it end on that kind of hope and the way that was shot um with the sun coming through the window and just kind of like the way she was focused and the way that you know on her the look on her face and everything so you kind of had a thing like okay i can watch the next episode now and kind of (laughs) want to see what happens compared to yeah the, the, the little hope of optimism that okay maybe she can maybe she will survive yeah this maybe she will see her daughter sooner than later you know i keep thinking about um how much time has passed since she was captured to when the story really starts like there there are only a couple of tiny references there's she says her daughter would be eight which implies that she was not eight when she was taken right Right. and her hair is very long and it was not that long when she was taken and it that's like a long time of growing and she's been with one guy already so Mm -hmm. that was probably a couple years maybe i don't know how long you are kept at a ho- you would be kept at a house not reproducing I before like you moved. I something about two years, but I could just be remembering Oh, man, that's a long time. So, yeah, I, I did think that was interesting. I kind of felt the same way as you don't really know yeah. how long it's been. And it seems pretty seamless, right? Like, they all know the routines. They know exactly what's expected. Right, and what so it's obviously been going do. on for know some allowed to say. amount of time. Um, I think in the book, it had been going on longer. But, again, everybody's older. And I think yeah. it was supposed to feel... Like this had been taking place for a while, and so that you felt that like she had been in it for a long time and was still, you know, trying to resist and trying to be part of this resistance, but that it had been a while and that society had just kind of accepted it at that point. Um, so yeah, I got it, the same feeling as how long has it really been? Yeah, how they, long could she have kept up this level of inner resistance without right. any outside support or friendship? Right, because I they wonder. you don't know who to be friends with. Exactly. You can't trust anybody. Right. And she's still looking for a first sign of her closest friend. Like that's, that would be hard. True. That's interesting. I mean, that she wouldn't like buckle and, you know, Mm. either try to end it or commit, I guess. I don't know. Well, and the distrust kind of leads you right to the last 
second to last shot probably in the show where uh, Alexis, is it Alexis Bedell? Yeah. yeah. And she tells her there's an eye in your house, which the eye is basically someone who is watching for the government of Gilead. So they keep an eye on the house to make sure that no one is, you know, doing anything that isn't supposed to be done. So there's, if anybody steps out of line, they report them. And then the black van that you saw Jason on the street when they mm-hmm. were walking and they were like, you know, looking in a window, which is something they're not supposed to do. Like the basic premise is they're supposed to go to the store and go back to the house. And that's all they're supposed to do. And they're not supposed to look at each other. They're supposed to walk and kind of look at the ground as they walk. And so them even looking in that window is like breaking a big taboo um, for that society at that point. And so the eye is supposed to be this person and this organization of people within the houses of the society that keep watch to make sure that everyone is complying. Well, yeah, the idea is you don't know where the eye is exactly. or where. And so it's this this building on the panopticon, this idea that if you, as long as you think you could be being watched, that's all you need. You don't need to physically punish everyone who breaks every rule. You just need the people think people to think that that could happen to me if right, I the was perceived danger is yeah. almost worse than being in actual danger at that point cuz what are you going to do? You could be Janine. Could be Janine. Let's talk about Janine <laughs> because Janine it's fantastic. Um, terrible, terrible things happened to Janine in this story. But Janine is your... Uh, she was kind of your character that represented the rebels. She's kind of the id when she first walks in, I yeah, think. She's like, ah, whatever. When they're in the Red Center and Aunt Lydia's going through all the slides and talking about all the things, she's kind of in the back, slouched down like the kid in the back of the class. It's like, screw you, lady. And then she gets cattle prod in the neck and they drag her away and they rip her eye out. Which, I knew it was from the Sermon on the Mount, and then I had to think about it, and I looked it up, and it's from a section where Jesus is talking about adultery. So it is a specific kind of sex crime, so to speak, reference of looking around and letting your eye, you know, be where it shouldn't be in terms of sexual relationships. So it's an interesting choice. Extra layers of creepiness. Yes. So many layers. So then when Janine is returned, Janine has lost the eye, is waking up in the middle of the night pretending to be a waitress, I think. Like trying to like reenact. Yeah, she's her. like dissociating yeah, completely. She's like completely lost it and is up in the middle of the night talking to patrons of a diner or some restaurant that she's worked at, and they basically had to smack her back into submission. And that girl stole every scene that she was in, especially at the salvaging where oh, she is now Janine, however Rejoicing. many yeah. right, <laughs> however long we are in the future, pregnant. very pregnant, and has completely you can see just kind of lost it and they ask about i forget who even the character's name was and she's like oh she's dead moira it was moira oh oh, was it moira okay and that's why that's why okay offred was freaking the f out for the whole situation (laughs) um because she was that's why she was really unhinged right that was okay. That was the first she had heard of her closest friend that Gosh. she knew survived, and Janine. a cra- yeah. crazy person is telling her that she's dead. Wow! And you see how much their appearance doesn't matter, right? Like it's okay for a handmaid to not have an eye, and you see the eye socket, right. and it all kind of oh, healed yeah, up there. It was a fairly great because you're, that's just not necessary for you. You know, you're, the most important part of you is the part that is uh, under your eyes. They're growing month by month, well, three feet south of your eyes, <laughs> give or take. <laughs> all right so yeah and then janine gets to do the dance she dances while they beat the guy yeah. to death which yeah. is because she can't partake right that's too that's, yeah, that, would yeah, be dangerous. That, that would be dangerous I, for the baby dangerous. i'm surprised when they even let was, her come yes when she was do when she was doing her crazy janine dance 
during the murder, the mass murder of the possible rapist, I kept thinking, like, why is she there? She's, there she's crazy. Dance. She might jump in. That's true. And Janine is a little unhinged. You think like, they? I think she's enjoying her she status, though, out? right? She would not put that in jeopardy. She is. That was she's a part of the, the book too. Position. The first time you yeah. see her in the book, she is in, definitely like out flaunting her status as yeah. extremely pregnant. But it's at the market, like it's in right. a safe environment. Mm-hmm. But there is mention of like a woman that pregnant, a handmaid that pregnant well, doesn't that, have to do the shopping. She doesn't have to go anywhere. She could just stay in bed. Right, and that um, is that's the goal, right? That's yeah. the holy grail, that's if you will. Of the society is children. So you, and you bear a child and have it taken away from you immediately. Yes. And I did think, I, they'll get into this more, the hierarchy of the women in the society. So you have the handmaids, which are the fertile women who can have the children, and that is their job and that is their role. They're kind of both at the top and the bottom simultaneously. Correct. And then the Marthas, do we know? I don't even remember in the book whether the Marthas are like the one. I know they do like all the kitchen work but i don't know if that's because they can't have kids anymore i always assumed it's because they can't or if they're just older if they do you remember ria you've Uh -uh. read the book much more recently yeah no i don't think that they ever explain how you get to be a martha versus like an unwoman i always just assumed that the marthas were not fertile but still like young enough to be useful labor in a household like they could do the cooking and the cleaning and things like that yeah because the when they talk about getting sent to the when she when um moira is y- screaming at janine and telling her you will get sent to the colonies where you will you know clean up toxic waste and your skin will fall off that's basically you know there's been these great wars basically in this in what used to be the united states and that's where you get sent if you're too old or infertile or not usable anymore but in their eyes you okay. to go clean up toxic waste what me or gay oh i thought you said we're me no. i was like man I'm not cleaning up toxic waste. I'd rather be beaten to death by handmaids. You probably would be in this in this world. Absolutely. You have the same problem I do. On the wall. We, we would. We'd be <laughs> we would both die immediately in the war as... We would be dead. All right. So that wraps up our podcast on the first episode of The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. Uh, we enjoyed it quite a bit. And I'm glad Jason, who was our Handmaid's Tale virgin, got to enjoy it with us. Uh, for everyone... What? You can't be a virgin? It's just Can I not do virgin? In the show context. It's kind of weird. <laughs> Poor kind of weird. Kind of weird. Fine. How should I end the show then? I wanted to call Jason a virgin. Oh, good. Thanks. We initiated that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there is not going to be anything that doesn't seem like a euphemism for one part of the show or another. Let's move on. Yeah. All right. Right All right, right thank you for uh, listening to the first episode of Mayday, the Handmaid's Tale podcast. We will be back next week when we preview episodes two and three. See ya. See ya. Bye. But don't go anywhere just yet. Like I said, every week on this show, we are going to try and spotlight someone, a company, a person, an organization that is doing something positive in the world. So we are today going to focus on John Marcotte. He is the founder and creator of a website called HeroicGirls.com that spotlights positive things going on in comics as it relates to girls. So I talked to him and I asked him uh, how he got started and uh, where things are going. I am the father of uh, two girls. Uh, They are currently 12 and 9. But a few years back... uh, they picked up on my love of comic books and superheroes and all things nerdy, and they started uh, really getting into superheroes. And I noticed what I thought was a positive effect on the girls 
from modeling after superheroes as opposed to what girls are traditionally given to model after, which are like Barbie dolls, uh, Disney princesses. And so I started a, a Tumblr blog uh, uh, where all social justice warriors hang out on why I thought superheroes were having a positive effect on my girls. And a feminist website in New York uh, picked up on that, Women You Should Know, and they asked for reprint rights, and then I started writing some pieces for them. And then I wrote uh, from there. I, I became a Huffington Post blogger for a while until I noticed they didn't pay me. Then uh, from that, I did a TED Talk on why superheroes are good for girls. And I kind of built up a following during this. And so we started a website and a Facebook group uh, to talk about some of the issues that came up in the writing and in uh, uh, the TED Talk. And um, that group has just grown and grown and grown kind of organically uh, as a combination of my own thoughts, uh, you know, pop culture articles, gender studies, just all sorts of uh, – uh, a weird mismatch of entertainment and uh, gender studies, that would be the way I would say it. And it seems to resonate with people because we've just, like I said, steadily grown over the past few years until we're up at uh, 23 or 24,000 people on Facebook, I think. Now, if you have a daughter and you have tried to get her into comics or she has all of a sudden picked up a comic book or a manga book or something from the library or the bookstore, you know how difficult it is to try and find what appropriate material there is out there for girls. It can be tough. The ratings are all over the place from the various publishers. The content is just wide varieties of appropriate and inappropriate. And I wanted to spotlight the fact that John, on his website, heroicgirls.com, has an all-ages recommended book section which was fantastic, and I wish I would have had this a long time ago when my daughter started getting into comic books and graphic novels. And so I discussed with him if that was something that he came up with as a need for himself or was it just for the audience, because it can be tough trying to find material that is appropriate for girls when it comes to comic books. I thought, you know, hey, let's, let's put together a list of comic books that are great for girls because girls have more of a problem finding suitable material in the comic book aisle, um, it's very easy for boys to find all sorts of appropriate superhero comics that give them heroic role models that they can follow. That's the, the bulk of what is out there. For girls, it can be a little tough because even when it is a female protagonist, uh, you know, comic books have had traditionally had uh, somewhat of a problem uh, drawing women uh, for men, not for not, not not for women or for girls. So even if you have a female protagonist they could be drawn in a way that is, you know, very sexually suggestive or something like that and probably not appropriate for kids. And I'm not saying those books shouldn't exist or anything like that. I'm just saying it's a, it's a bit of a minefield. And if you're looking for sure. something for a little girl, uh, you may not want to get her Catwoman because Catwoman is uh, dressed in skin-tight leather and her right. books are really written more at a high school level, most mainstream comics now. Uh, or, you know, high school or above, so there are going to be sexual situations and things, and you don't know what kind of messaging a kid might take away from that. Then we touched on how girls are marketed to when it comes to comic books. I have a daughter who is very into comic books right now, but in the beginning, we kind of got into it through manga and other things, primarily through the library or bookstores where comic books just don't exist. That's interesting. People say girls aren't into comics, but uh, if they're presented with them, they, they certainly are. Um, 
if you look at that manga aisle in Barnes and Noble, it's an enormous section of books, and girls are the primary consumers of that. Also, also like uh, uh, graphic novel authors like uh, Raina Telgemeier, which uh, most comic book uh, patrons probably don't know who she is. She's written a series of graphic novels about her childhood uh, and some fictional stories like Sisters and Smile, which is about her getting braces, that are fantastic stories. They've sold millions and millions of copies, but they're sold in bookstores, not in comic book stores. Um, so people may not be aware that girls are consuming this material hand over fist. In fact, Raina Telgemeier for a while there, she was like four or five out of the top ten best-selling graphic novels on the New York Times list several years in a row. I'm sure she has a couple on there now. Uh, girls are buying comics in droves. They're just, because they were not really invited into the comic stores uh, the way the boys were when they started, they found a different path to get into comics. So it, girls will certainly consume comics. You just have to make Absolutely. sure that you're getting it into their hands and, and giving them something that they might like to read. Marvel Comics in recent years has made a large push to try and diversify their character base. They introduced new female characters like Kamala Khan, who is Miss Marvel, and Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, another successful comic. But they also made the creative decision to change some of their existing characters, replacing fan favorites like Iron Man and Wolverine with females taking their roles. I asked uh, John how I felt about this and the recent controversy as someone in Marvel high up allegedly spoke out about their push for the more diverse characters and how it had failed. Sales had flattened or gone down in some cases, and Marvel was now going to make a push back the other direction to reestablish the traditional male versions of their superheroes. Uh, yeah, Bleeding Cool uh, did an article on that, um, and I can't remember who it was in Marvel that, 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 you know, told, that they had their source that told them that this was Marvel's uh, kind of thinking on this. Um, you know, it, it, it's a couple things. There are two or three intermingled issues that uh, all kind of bleed together. Um, and, you know, one is uh, that diversity in itself is not a bad thing. And, you know, because, uh, you know, you look at somebody like uh, one of the things that uh, was interesting was they put up a, a picture of Kamala Khan, uh, Ms. Marvel, uh, as one of the, you know, the, the, I guess symptomatic of the problems. Uh, Ms. Marvel <laughs> is one of the most popular new characters that Marvel's introduced Absolutely. in probably 20 or 30 years. Uh, her graphic novels have been uh, uh, on the bestseller list multiple times in a row. Every time a new one comes out, it's a bestseller. Um, she is my my people, daughter's absolute favorite. So we yeah, have those I, the day they come out. Yeah, I like her. I like her too because in my mind, she is the new Peter Parker. She's the teenage uh, superhero with, uh, you know, that has to balance these teenage home life problems against uh, yes. you know, super heroics. Um, She's also Muslim-American. She's the first really mainstream Muslim-American uh, superhero of note. And, uh, you know, people, the, the people that don't like diversity, well, you know, they're shoving her down your throat and stuff. Well, you know what? She's a, just a good character, and I want my fictional world to better reflect the real world that I see around me. And when I look around the world around me, uh, you know, I'm here in California, uh, number one, half the people are women, and number two, uh, I see a broad spectrum of people of different races and creeds and things like that. When comics were created, the uh, the main roster of the DC Universe was created in the 40s, and the main roster of the Marvel Universe was created in the 60s. And you can tell how important diversity was back then by the fact that in both cases, the universes were primarily created by Jewish men who changed their last name so that people would not know that they were Jewish men. <laughs> right. So it, yeah. 
it, you know, diversity wasn't really it. So we ended up with a very white, very male universe, and people love these characters, and there's nothing inherently wrong with any one of them. But when you take them out of the collection, you can still sort of see the problem where it's like, boy, the Justice League, they're throwing Cyborg in there, and everybody's going, why is he in the Justice League? It's because they don't have the other black superheroes, really, of note. They decided they right. wanted to return to roots. They put uh, Hal Jordan back in there instead of John Stewart. And they they had a real problem of not being able to find, uh, you know, uh, uh, they wanted to throw some color on the team, and they didn't have a lot of options because uh, the comic book companies in general, up until recently, have done a poor job of – uh, creating uh, superheroes that are different races and not a great job of different genders. Um, you know, the uh, uh, you know when you talk about like female black superheroes, uh, it it kind of began and start, ended with Storm for a while. They just really right, yeah. Lot out there. I mean, you know, everyone goes, "Well, they got Storm." I said, "Yeah, that's one character that was created almost right. forty years ago." Exactly. <laughs> Anything else? And yeah, you know, what so, have you done for me lately? What have you done for lately? So Marvel's solution was they did this kind of like, let's just, you know, we're going to blow this place up and we're going to project for the future. We're going to rebuild the Marvel Universe so that it better reflects uh, the world around us. So they figured out different ways to kind of sideline some of their major superheroes like uh, Wolverine, uh, Thor, and Captain America. And they replaced them with, uh, in Wolverine is in Thor's case, they uh, replaced them with women. Uh, Captain America, uh, for a while anyways, uh, they replaced him with, uh, the Falcon, who is black. And, you know, they did, they, things like that. That was a kind of across the board. The Hulk, uh, was Asian for a while. I uh, still is actually. Yes. Uh, you know, they, and so they, they tried this initiative of broadening the thing. And I think there is an audience for that. We were talking about that manga aisle in Barnes and Noble. Girls like yep. comics. And if you put more content out before them, I'm convinced they would like that. So, what's next for the comic book publishers? Do they make a mad dash back to the more conventional, male-driven, less diverse line of characters? Do they play it safe? Does it even matter when no matter what they do, the comic book sales numbers don't seem to improve in spite of overwhelming success of comic book movies and TV shows? We'll talk to John about that and get John's take on being a man, speaking on feminist issues, and more on part two of our interview at the conclusion of the next episode of Mayday, the Handmaid's Tale podcast. Thanks for listening.